Hello, and welcome to New Books in Public Policy. Each week we talk to an author about a new book that they've written in the public policy arena and talk to them about their recommendations for public policy going forward. This week we are talking to Peter Beinart, the author of The Crisis of Zionism. It is a somewhat controversial book that has gotten a lot of attention. He criticizes the American Jewish community for their support of Israel and argues that they should rethink the levels of support in the wake of what he sees as improper Israeli actions in terms of both the peace process and in terms of the civil rights of the native Palestinian or Israeli Arab population. Peter has given a copy of his book directly to President Obama, and this may be the first book here on New Books and Public Policy that was given directly to a president, although presidents read a great deal. This book is the first one on this podcast that's had that distinction, and we will be looking for that marker on other books that we interview and other authors that we interview in the future. But without further ado, here is Peter Beiner. Hello, Peter. Hey, Debbie. Welcome to New Books and Public Policy. Thank you. We're very glad to have you on board today. Uh, I'd love to start the interview today by just asking you a little bit about yourself. Can you tell us who you are and how you came to write this book? Sure. Um, my name is Peter Beinart. I'm a professor at City University of New York, a professor of journalism and political science, and um, a senior political writer at The Daily Beast. And I also run a blog at The Daily Beast called Open Zion. I This book was the extension of an essay I wrote two summers ago in the New York Review of Books called The Failure of the American Jewish Establishment. And it, I was became interested in the question of the what I consider to be the crisis of Israeli democracy, the danger to Israel's existence as a democratic Jewish state, and why it was that American Jews had so much difficulty responding to that crisis. Uh, usually, we when we talk about books, there are... Uh... We just talked specifically about what's in the book, but in your book, it's hard to discuss it without talking about the reaction to the book. Can you talk a little bit about how your book has received, and in many ways it's been, I guess, surprising to you? Has it been surprising to you, and what have you thought about the reactions? Well, I I knew this would be uh, a very controversial book, and it has been a very controversial book. It's it's a book that... um, has received a fair amount of praise and also uh, uh, a lot of criticism. The um, the criticism, the most high-profile criticism, has come from people to my right who think, um, uh, uh, well, you know, it's sometimes hard to know what actually they think about the substance of the book because I find that so much of the criticism of the book essentially evades the central argument of the book, which is that continued subsidies for settlement growth in, uh, are leading us towards Israel's permanent occupation of the West Bank, which would force Israel to choose between being a democracy and being a Jewish state. Um, uh, but I think that there's um, some of the criticism uh, suggests that I um, put too much blame for the failure to create a Palestinian state on the Israeli side and not enough on the Palestinian side. Um, I disagree with that, but that there, there has been some criticism of that vein. There's also been a lot of criticism, although it doesn't get as much publicity. There's a lot of criticism of the book um, on, from the left by Palestinians as well, who think, who, who think the book is, who rightly think the book is a defense of Israel's existence uh, as a democratic Jewish state and a defense of the idea of liberal Zionism, and, and, and who criticize the book because they fundamentally believe that liberal Zionism is an oxymoron. 
Let, let, let's talk about that ladder critique first, because that is something that, as you said, has not gotten a lot of attention. From what quarters is that critique coming, and, and how would you respond to it? Well, it's you know there is a there is a whole world of of discourse um, of Palestinians and other anti-Zionists. It, it rarely makes it the American Jewish community uh, rarely engages with it, or and it rarely makes it into the mainstream media. But essentially, the argument would go um, that built into the cake of Israeli um, of Israel's existence is a, a set of privileges for Jews, um, which you could see in uh, preferential immigration policy. You could see in uh, symbols like the flag and the national anthem that, are, that speak specifically to Jews and that wouldn't resonate in the same way with non-Jews, uh, with land policies that have their existence in pre-state institutions, which essentially create quasi-governmental institutions that are aimed at developing land for the use of Jews, which creates all kinds of issues in terms of land, uh, procuring land even for those uh, let's say, call them Palestinian citizens of Israel living inside the Green Line since, since the term Arab-Israeli has really fallen out of favor amongst, um, amongst Palestinian citizens who live within Israel. And I think beyond that, they would say that the very notion that Israel has to maintain a Jewish majority leads inherently to discriminatory policies. Um, so, for instance, uh, you know, the, 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 the government is always going to be looking for ways of of incentivizing more Jews to live in Israel and actually disincentivizing Palestinians, and not just Palestinians, but other non-Jews from living in Israel or at least gaining citizenship in Israel. So that's, that's an argument you hear very frequently on the left. My response, which I try to make at the beginning of the first chapter, is that there is indeed a tension between liberal democracy and Zionism. Uh, there's a tension between a state that tries to protect and represent the Jewish people and a state whose declaration of independence promises complete equality of social and political rights irrespective of race, religion, and sex. But that just because two things are in tension does not mean that either one is necessarily legitimate. There can be also tension between civil liberties and national security or environmental protection and economic development, and we try to we recognize that there's a validity to both, and we try to bring them into as great a harmony as possible, recognizing that there will always be some tension. And this tension is not unique to Israel. There are many countries in Europe that have democracies in Europe that have crosses on their flags, many democracies in Eastern Europe, especially that have preferential immigration policies for the uh, for one ethnic group. So I argue that Israel is not the only society wrestling with that tension, and I try to suggest that Israel could move towards a better um, reconciliation if it reached out to its Palestinian citizen population in a way that has not really been done since the prime ministership of Yitzhak Harbin. Well, let's be specific about that. What, what would that type of reach out entail, and what would Israel do? I mean, if, if Israel came to the Palestinians tomorrow and said, okay, we're willing to give up uh, certain parts of, of the West Bank and, and leave our occupation, w would that create peace? I mean, you look at the Gaza situation, for example, where Sharon said, okay, fine, you can have Gaza. And that has not led to peace in the Gaza area. In fact, it's led to a, a lot of missiles. How would you respond to that? Well, I should just say, I first, I wasn't talking about the West Bank at all. I was only talking about Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel, what, what Jews, what we usually refer to as Arab-Israelis, those inside the Green Line. I didn't use the term Arab-Israelis because... Arab Israelis now no longer use the term themselves. So I was talking about 
essentially those Palestinians who are citizens of the state of Israel inside the Green Line. And there, what I think you need to do is you need to make sure that you, you need to deal with this very, very significant structural imbalance in funding for their schools, their roads, their health clinics. Um, the Orr Commission, which was done in the wake of the first of the Second Intifada, said that the Israeli government's treatment of its, of its Arab citizen population had been defined by discrimination and neglect. Um, the uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel are very underrepresented in, in, in the civil service, for instance. Uh, there was a long-standing inequity in the childhood allowance payments that Rabin tried to rectify. Uh, and I think you also really have to deal with the question of land. You know, there's really, there's been, essentially, Palestinian citizens of Israel uh, live on about 4% of Israel's land, even though they represent about 20% of Israel's population. And, um, and, and, and it's very, very difficult for a variety of reasons for Palestinian citizens in Israel to expand for, to, for the villages and the towns to expand, and it's also often quite difficult for them to move into historically Jewish towns and neighborhoods. Um, uh, and you've seen in places like Svat, when they have significant numbers, you saw this awful backlash where, where a whole series of rabbis, government-paid rabbis, uh, circulated a letter saying Jews should not rent apartments to to Arabs. So that's that's what I was talking. About. I'm happy to talk about the question of of, of um, a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza. As well, but just to be clear, that wasn't what I was actually getting at. But it sounds then that, that you're talking about two different peace processes: one dealing with the Palestinian population outside Central Israel, and the others that I guess we used to call Arab Israelis, but you say is no longer uh, politically correct to do so. No, no, it's not, it's not a question of politically correct. It's just a question if you look at the polling of those people we call Arab Israelis, and the expert here is really a guy at University of Haifa named Sami Smuha, you find they have moved away from the term Arab Israelis themselves towards essentially terms like Palestinian citizens of Israel. So just as we essentially kind of, as African, as African Americans, stopped, started calling themselves African American, not black, I think kind of other people kind of followed their linguistic self-definition. I think it's a sign of respect to do that for um, Arab Israelis or Palestinian citizens of Israel too, but I agree. You're right. I think there are two. Uh, there are two. Um, the, the struggle, the situation in the West Bank and Gaza um, gets more attention, but the situation of the relationship between Israelis and Palestinians inside the Green Line, I think, is as much a challenge to Israel as 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 the question of what it does with the territories it won in 1967, um, and and a very very uh, and raises very very deep issues for 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 Israel's existence. I think the two are interrelated, however, in that one of the things that makes it harder to build bridges between Israelis and Palestinians inside the Green Line is the occupation itself because the the since since the Palestinian population of the West Bank and Gaza and inside the Green Line is very connected, right? I mean these are all people who were essentially these are you know, these are many of them are extended families that where you have cousins and relatives who are on different sides of the Green Line. The anger that is produced by Israel's occupation of the West Bank uh, and its occupation of Gaza, because I think it's important to remember that Israel still occupies Gaza, according to the United States government, um, produces an animosity that makes it harder to reconcile Jews and Palestinians inside the Green Line, and the violence coming, the, the violence, terrorism coming from the West Bank and Gaza towards Israeli Jews leads them to see 
Palestinian citizens of Israel as a fifth column, and that's a big part of what Avigdor Lieberman has based his political his political emergence on is the is the claim essentially that these citizens of Israel are uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel essentially a fifth column in sympathy with Israel's enemies. There's some some polling some some evidence that they are sympathetic to um, to groups like Hezbollah and Hamas, although actually. To be fair, there hasn't really been a lot of terrorism committed by Palestinian citizens of Israel, thank God. Can you back up a little bit and explain to our listeners who Avigdor Lieberman is? Sure. So Avigdor Lieberman is the, is the, is the foreign minister um, and deputy prime minister of Israel. He's the, he was Benjamin Netanyahu's chief of staff, actually, um, in Netanyahu's first prime ministership. He, he, he's the head of a party called Yisrael Betenu, which is a party that has, that has gone essentially in the last decade from being a quite small party to now being... Israel's third largest party, a party that has is based significantly on Russian votes, and Lieberman is, is from Moldova in the former Soviet Union, but also has managed to attract votes essentially from from the right more generally by running a politics that um, in some ways is to Likud's right, with more of an emphasis, I would say, on, um, on cracking down on perceived disloyalty by both Palestinians living inside Israel and uh, against um, against kind of um, uh, you know critics of Israel inside uh, inside the country. So, for instance, Lieberman was a big someone who was very influential in trying to push legislation that would have made it more difficult for Israeli uh, you know human rights organizations to operate. Yeah, we've spent most of our time thus far talking about Israel, but the book really, in many ways, is about America and the American Jewish community. Yes. Can you talk yes. a little bit about your views of the American Jewish community and what you think they should be doing when it comes to Israel advocacy? Sure. Um, I think that there are, there are a couple of fundamental problems in terms of the American Jewish relationship with Israel. The first one, which I think is probably not that ideologically controversial, is that Many American Jews just don't have much of a relationship with Israel. I mean, um, a majority of American Jews have never been to Israel. Of course, only a very small major- minority of American Jews actually speak Hebrew, and so, and and um, so, the American Jewish community is much more distant from Israel than I think you might imagine. Often, reading the American press, and that's. Uh, largely a function of the fact that large sections of the American Jewish communities, I don't need to tell you, Tevi, are simply quite disconnected from Judaism itself. I mean, you've got a community with very, on average, very low levels of Jewish literacy, and as a result, fairly low levels of Jewish commitment, um, as evidenced, you know, American Jews go to, I think I saw a poll that shows that American Jews go to religious services weekly as third as as, light, as often, as frequently as do Christians. Uh, they're half as likely to say that they believe in God. And, you know, there's a 50% intermarriage rate. So, essentially, cultural Jewish identity, I think, has been in decline. It's not been a kind of a bulwark against assimilation. And there are not very many American Jews who have a very strong religious Jewish identity. There's some. Um, but, um, but American Jews are much more secular than American Christians. And that has implications for, uh, you know, your connection to a Jewish state if you're not that connected to things Jewish. So I think that's problem number one. Um, then amongst that minority of American Jews who really are connected, feel themselves connected to the state of Israel, I think the problem is that there is um, an organizational leadership that tends to 
define what it means to be supportive of the state of Israel as supporting the policies of the Israeli government without, I think, enough attention to the way the policies of the Israeli government are threatening the principles of Israel's Declaration of Independence. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and I think that's, for me, that's one of the focuses of the book, is essentially trying to talk about why it is that we, as a the American Jewish community that has been quite involved in the struggle for a liberal democracy in the United States has not really been able to quite face the fact that Israel for 45 years now has controlled territory where it's not a democracy and that as that comes ever closer to being permanent, it puts the whole status of Israel as a democracy and the whole and, 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 and the, the whole idea that Zionism could be a democratic movement, I think, puts it in peril. Do, do you think... Uh... It's fair to characterize the American Jewish leadership in, in one in one way because there, there's an old story about how Eisenhower and his government yes. complained in the 50s that there were so many different Jewish organizations that they wanted yes. one umbrella organization and they came up with the Council of uh, of Presidents of major Jewish organizations yes. and there are now 53 different groups involved. In yes, so, mostly most of them not very major right. at all. Um, presidents. Yeah, I mean, look, I was I was trying to you know I was generalizing. If I had to divide the American Jewish leadership, I'd divide them into three categories. On the left, I'm not sure you even call them establishment, you would have groups that, um, like J Street and Americans for Peace Now and New Israel Fund, um, which essentially do take the explicit position that in order to support Israeli democracy, you should be critical of, of the policies of the Israeli government. Then you have a kind of group that I would call kind of like a centrist group in which I include the Anti-Defamation League, the American Jewish Committee. Um, those groups are, will criticize the policies of the Israeli government um, uh, sometimes when they say when it doesn't deal with security. I put probably the reform and conservative movements in this category. So they criticize the Israeli government when it has to do with the rights of non-Orthodox Jews. They have been somewhat critical of what they call anti-democratic legislation. Uh, pushed by the Knesset since uh, 2009. They will criticize when it doesn't have to do with security. And what's interesting about groups like about the reform movement, ADL, AJC, is that they are civil rights groups inside the United States. They're in, they, they have an interest in global human rights, and yet they're also trying to defend the Israeli government's policies. And I think that creates an, I think, inherent tension between their anti-discrimination uh, mission and their desire to defend policies of the Israeli government, even though sometimes those policies are themselves discriminatory. And then on the right, and this is where I think the greatest growth is probably happening, this is where I think the, this is where I think the American Jewish establishment is growing. You see groups like APAC, which and the President's Conference, which have a basically an explicit policy of no criticism of the Israeli government, no matter what. Um, and um, and groups even further to the right, like Zionist Organization for America and the Orthodox Union, that I would actually say are actually perhaps, certainly see the VOA, actually a little bit willing to criticize the Israeli government from the right. And um, demographically, I think what you find is that as you move across these three different categories, you essentially move from more secular Jews to more religious Jews. So that by the time you get into the last category, um, you know, the OU, obviously, a National Council of Young Israel, but also increasingly ZOA and to a significant degree APAC, you're dealing with a more religious Jewish population and increasingly a more orthodox uh, Jewish population. When you talk about this, this third group, I think that 
plays into that that first Israel project I put in there as well. Stand with us. Anyway, go ahead. But that first group of of critiques that you got for the book, yes. which was that you uh, didn't. Um, didn't highlight enough uh, the security, the very real security concerns that Israel has. You didn't talk enough about terrorism, and you made it sound that Israel is just uh, being uh, tough, uh, being anti-civil rights to Palestinians because they like to or because they want to, and you didn't uh, put it in the context of Israel has some very real existential security concerns. Can you talk about that? And if you had to do the book again, would you have... I guess softened it or hardened the notion of the um, of the the terrorism challenge that Israel faces. Well, no, I mean I just reject that criticism. I mean, look, there is there there is a um, I I I spend uh, quite a bit of time in my book trying to explain why I think the second intifada happened, uh, uh, and in so in so doing, I'm extremely critical of Yasser Arafat, and also spend a fair amount of time to explain what happened with Israel's dismantling of settlements from Gaza, and how, and how, and and what happened in the years between that in 2005, and then Operation Cast Lead in late 2008. Look, there is a myth out there. I think primarily a myth that that that. that Civilian settlements in the West Bank contribute to Israeli security. I think it's a myth. First of all, the the that every former head of Shin Bet and Mossad and every former head of the IDF except for one is publicly who has publicly spoken is on record as supporting a Palestinian state in the West Bank uh, and Gaza. Um, that's not to say that they're not security risks. As I say in the book, there are indeed security risks, but the security risks. But right now, it's important to remember that Israel is relying to some significant degree. On, for its anti-terrorism work in the West Bank on the Palestinian Authority. Israel is subcontracting is, uh, to a significant degree its anti-terrorism work to the Palestinian Authority. That Palestinian Authority is not going to continue on forever. It's going to go out of business. It was created as a temporary institution to be a vehicle for a Palestinian state in the 1990s. The only reason that Fayyad is doing that security cooperation is because he believed that it was going to help convince Israel and the rest of the world that the Palestinians could be trusted with statehood because they were doing good security cooperation. If, the, if, there's, no, if there's no pathway to a Palestinian state, I think the PA will collapse and Israel will be forced to decide whether it wants to go back to direct pre-Oslo occupation of the West Bank with Israeli 18-year-olds patrolling, you know, every town and village and city of the West Bank. And um, that's, the, that's, the, that's the other alternative that Israel is going to be forced to reckon with if it doesn't move towards a Palestinian state. I also think it's important to make a distinction between, even if you were to say, you know what, Peter, you're wrong, you're naive, we can't give back, the West Bank has to remain under Israeli control. I would still ask you the question, do you ultimately want to see a Palestinian state? If you ultimately want to see a Palestinian state, but you believe it's just not possible tomorrow because the Palestinians are not ready to live in peace, I would say, fine, let's keep the IDF in the West Bank. Let's keep the IDF controlling the West Bank and patrolling against terrorism and arms and all this stuff. But what possible security benefit do you get from pay, for paying Israeli civilians to move into the West Bank? These settlements, these disconnected kind of like um, – a little little peninsulas of settlements dotted throughout Palestinian territory throughout the West Bank of Israeli civilians are, actually hinder the security of the state of Israel. It takes it, 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 the idea spends vast amounts of money protecting them. And if in the you know in the in the, in the unlikely but you know terrifying event of some kind of Arab invasion across the Jordan Valley, 
you would have to go and then it would be a security nightmare for the IDF to have to deal with these all of these little um, kind of uh, uh, peninsulas of settlements scattered throughout Palestinian territory where you have you know, they might have some guns, these guys in the settlements, but basically they would be incredibly vulnerable to Arab armies. So I think it's really important to distinguish when one talks about security between IDF presence in the West Bank and civilian Israeli presence in the West Bank. I think that third area that you talked about, the sort of speculative area, let's assume that Israelis are comfortable with the notion of a Palestinian state but don't think that it's ripe right now. I think that describes where the majority of Israelis seem to be. The Israeli government seems to be, certainly even Netanyahu talks about how we favor a Palestinian state when the Palestinians are ready for it. And I think the American Jewish community is there and the American government's there as well. So where, where's the problem? Don't you think that's where the, the locus of support is in both the American Jewish community and the Israeli community? Well, it all really depends on what you mean by a Palestinian state. Um, the polling shows that Israelis are very divided. Um, if you ask uh, Israelis, for instance, whether they would support a Palestinian capital in Jerusalem, uh, you know, close to two-thirds will say no. If you ask Israelis, so yes, Israelis say they're for, Jews say they're for a Palestinian state. But if you actually then get into the nitty-gritty of what a Palestinian state would mean, let's say according to the Clinton parameters, Palestinian capital in Jerusalem, Israel handing over control of the Jordan Valley to an international force. On those questions, Israelis would say no. Um, so, and, and I should be clear, Palestinians would also, polling Palestinians would also show that Palestinians, by a small majority, would support the idea of two states. But then if you ask them that they, when you tell them they have to give up on all refugee return, they would also say no. So the truth is that the reality is that what Israeli Jews mean by a two-state solution and what Palestinians mean by a two-state solution are quite different things. And they therein lies the nub. My criticism of the problem, my criticism of the Netanyahu government would be, I don't think the Netanyahu government has never said that its definition of a two-state solution is within the same framework as the definition that Clinton laid out in December 2000 or that Ehud Olmert was, was negotiating uh, around in, in late 2008, which is to say, the 1967 lines plus swaps with a Palestinian capital in East Jerusalem and an inter a transition from Israeli control to an international force in the Jordan Valley. And Netanyahu may, have, may well have his justifications for not buying into that. But given that we've now had a series of negotiations that pretty clearly specified what the two-state solution would look like, it's not really credible to all of a sudden say that you're basically imagining a two-state solution in which the Palestinians are going to get who knows, 50, 60, 70% of the West Bank. That, there will not be, without, there's really not going to be a Palestinian state like that. But, but is anybody really advocating that, a 50%? Uh, oh, yeah, that was exactly what seems, Netanyahu... That was, it seems well, to me that, that this is the kind of thing that has to be sorted out in negotiations, that it's a good thing that both parties, both sides, uh, are in favor of a Palestinian state or two-state solution, and that the details have to be worked out in negotiations. Well, no, I think the problem with that, I mean, I should just say that Netanyahu's idea of essentially giving the Palestinians half of the West Bank, essentially giving them area A and B, and keep having Israel control what's now area C, was actually an idea that he laid out explicitly in his first prime ministership. He didn't call it a state, he just called it Palestinian autonomy. But this was an idea that he, he, he wrote about, he, he discussed at some length. But just, just to be um, clear, that was in the 90s, right? That was in the 90s. But I think the question is, now what I think, remember, he, he got elected being opposed to a Palestinian state. He created his government in in January 2009, opposed to a Palestinian state. Under pressure from the U.S., he said in a speech in June in Bar 2009 that he supported a Palestinian state. But it's really interesting how many of his own 
cabinet ministers have come out explicitly and said that this government's position is not supportive of the Palestinian state. Benny Begin said that a couple months ago with one of his eight members of the security cabinet. Uh, Moshe Alon, who's his vice prime minister, both have said that. His own father said after his Bar-Alon speech, he's only supporting a Palestinian, he's only, he's only offering a Palestinian state because he's offering conditions he knows the Palestinians won't accept. And I think the key question is, is, was the key moment was his response to Obama's speech in May 2011, 67 lines plus watts. The Palestinian, it's not given that given that, that you now have two Israeli prime ministers, Omer and Barack, who have negotiated within that framework for Netanyahu to try to go backwards and basically say. I'm going to enter negotiations without being within that framework. I think justifiably on the Palestinian side says basically makes us think that these negotiations are ultimately going to be meaningless. And in fact, the negotiations that have taken place between the Israelis and the Palestinians since 2009, and they've actually been more than people recognize because the Palestinians have negotiated with Israeli, Israel in the absence of a settlement freeze. They just haven't really made it, they haven't really, really publicized it. Um, have in fact result, have in fact been a series of, of situations in which the Palestinians have said, here's our offer, which is a 1.9% land swap, which was what they offered to Omer. And Netanyahu refusing to make any counter offer and just not not really not have not not being willing to discuss uh, territory at all, not being willing to offer any vision of his of how much territory he believes the Palestinian state should have. And I think, given his history, I think the Palestinians are rightly suspicious of that. I think we would be in a very different environment had Netanyahu agreed to continue the negotiations that Omer and Abbas were pursuing in late 2008. Well, I think it's clear there, there's suspicion on both sides, and I think yes, yes, Israel's looking true. for. You know, you, you said the Palestinians haven't highlighted their participation in the negotiations. Uh, I think another way of saying it is that they publicly reject negotiations at this point. So they do publicly, but they also and they met five times in January in Amman. They met a series. They met a whole series of times with with Perez and also with Bibi Abbas and Erekat last year um, in Europe and also in Jordan. And I think the reason the Palestinians were meeting is, remember, the Palestinians negotiated with Abbas, with Omer without a settlement freeze. So why did they do that? It's because they believed that there was a possibility of the deal, a deal because they believed Omer was serious. I know from Obama administration officials that the Obama administration people believe the Palestinians would have abandoned the call for a settlement freeze had Netanyahu been willing to negotiate along the same parameters is Omer. And I think of Netanyahu said publicly, I support negotiations based on the, the, the parameters of 67 plus swaps. I think probably you could get the Palestinians to negotiate without a settlement freeze. I actually think the Palestinians' desire for a settlement freeze is very legitimate um, given, the, given the fact that settlement growth makes the contiguity of a Palestinian state so much more difficult. But I actually think that you, they, they, I think that they are, they've been testing to see whether Netanyahu would negotiate seriously, in which case I think they probably could be pushed off of that demand. You mentioned the Obama administration a couple of times, and apparently I've read in some press reports that you met with President Obama to talk about your book in the context of meeting with other foreign policy thinkers, and you gave him a copy of your book. Can you talk a little bit about how he reacted? And you're not the only person to give Obama a, a Jewish-themed book recently. I know um, your friend uh, Jeff Goldberg gave him one, and um, the, the ambassador to Israel gave uh, President Obama the, the Book of Esther. Uh, what, what's going on with giving Obama all these books. I don't know. I, I'm sure Jews aren't the only ones to do that. I, you know, that was an off-the-record uh, event, so I, I really shouldn't talk about it. Uh, um, but, but it's uh, been reported in the press. So. It has been reported in the press, yeah. But that, you know, that was uh, um, that was their decision to to of other people to basically uh, have it be have it be reported. Um, 
I, I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in my book writing about my, my, um, my idea, my argument about what I think Obama believes about this question of Israel and Jews. I think it's, for me, it's a really interesting story because I think Obama had came into office with more Jewish experiences and relationships than any previous president, and, and a lot of that was just a function that he had spent a lot of his adult in life in places that had a lot of Jews, you know, Harvard Law School, um, and then the kind of the world of Columbia, kind of Columbia, Columbia. Columbia, yes, that's right, Columbia, exactly, Columbia, Harvard Hyde Law Park. School, exactly, Hyde Park, University of Chicago, the whole, and you know, Chicago, you know, I think he came to Chicago in the wake, in the, he, Obama in the 1980s, you know, remember the 80s was a period I was a kid then, you know, in which liberals, you know, wished that they could have been alive during the civil rights movement. It was a Reagan era, liberals were depressed, and Obama kind of wanted to create his own, be part of a civil rights movement, and he went to Chicago to do community organizing because he saw that as potential vehicle for a civil rights movement. And he got interested, I think, in the he was interested in Jews because of his knowledge of the role that Jews had played in the civil rights movement. And then when he, the or, many of the community organizers who brought him to Chicago were Jewish. It was the tradition of Saul Alinsky. And then when he came to Chicago, it was right in the wake of Harold Washington's mayoral election. And Washington was the first black mayor of Chicago. It was kind of Chicago's civil rights movement. And it was really, he was elected with a coalition of largely of blacks and Jews. And it was really that same coalition, these kind of liberal Jews in places like Hart Park and, and Lakeshore, that really helped to propel Obama's political career. And I think what's really intriguing to me is how many of those supporters of Obama, liberal Jewish supporters of Obama, were also very critical of Israeli policy. And I think that my hypothesis is that bred in Obama uh, a, 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 a perspective on Israel in which he you know, in which he admired uh, many things about Israel and, and, and certainly supported Israel's right to exist, like his Jewish friends did, but was very critical of some of the same policies of the Israeli government that, that he was. Now, he also had, you know, he also had he also had connections with people who were more fundamentally hostile to Israel than that, like Jeremiah Wright, for instance. Um, but there's really no evidence that I've been able to find, or I think anyone has ever found, that. And you know, he was a student of Edward. Sa you know, he took a class with Edward Said um, when he was at Columbia. He was yeah, friendly with our uh, listeners. Who Edward Said was? Yeah, Edward Said is probably the most important influential Palestinian intellectual of the 20th century. A fam famous literary critic and um, a man of the left who was very critical, uh, obviously very critical of Israel, um, uh, ambivalent perhaps about the two-state solution. Um, and um and, and, and you know, um Rashid Khalidi, who now holds the Edward Said chair at Columbia, was also a friend of Obama's when Obama now Khalidi is, is perhaps now in the wake of Said's death the most influential Palestinian American kind of academic, intellectual. Um but it's you can't really no one has ever I have not turned up, nor has anyone that I know of ever turned up any statements by Obama ever in which Obama questioned Israel's legitimacy and its existence. What you can find is Statements by Obama basically saying, um, you know, the, that, um, that uh, you know, like he famously said, you don't have to be pro-Likud to be pro-Israel. Um, or one of his, his rabbi, Arnold Jacob Wolf, said that Obama was along the lines of peace now, which is essentially to say, you know, Obama's read at least two books by David Grossman. So I think, I think Obama... Has, has has kind of always felt comfortable with I would say a kind of a you know a kind of liberal left Zionist perspective that is that is quite been very that is critical of Israel's occupation of the West Bank.
You know, one thing that's interesting in that chapter, and I mm. found that chapter called The Jewish President particularly interesting in your book, was you talk about how he has had these influences from, from many Jews in his adult life. But I, I think it's probably likely that he met fewer Jews than any other president before he actually entered Colombia. So in the first two decades of his life, he probably had the least experience with Jews of any president. Do you think that shapes it at all? Indonesia and Hawaii. Hawaii yeah. yeah, that's that's probably true. Although, I mean, I think, I mean, look, I mean, how many Jews did Bill Clinton know growing up in in Arkansas or Jimmy Carter in in uh, in you know in in uh, in Georgia or George H W Bush, you know, in the kind of Connecticut, you know, and over Exeter world of the 1940s. I mean, maybe you know George W. Bush, maybe there were a couple running around at Andover that George W Bush met, but I don't actually think there are very many presidents. I can't think of. Maybe you can think of any who. In you know, in their childhood, would have interacted with a lot of Jews. I mean, can you think of any? No, I'm sure Kennedy knew some, but when I say child, I mean the first. Obama kind of came to it sort of later than other people. I mean, even Mitt Romney, you know, as a freshman at Stanford, I'm sure he he met Jews there, and um, you know, I'm sure both Bushes met Jews. Well, the second Bush, I'm sure, met Jews at Andover. The first Bush. Um, probably met him yeah. when he came to Yale. So I mean, it just. He, and, but Jews are much. It seems to me much more important in the let's say in the in the Northeast than they are in Hawaii and Indonesia. So you're, yeah. you're more aware of them and their arguments and what they what they have to say. Yes, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I think you know, Obama went to came to Columbia as a whatever he was a junior, I think, like or something in college. So I think I think in his twenties. There's actually a great story I read about Kennedy where. Kennedy had some of his father's, that's a total diversion, but I think Kennedy, you know, had some of his father's kind of casual anti-Semitism, and his brother, his older brother, really had it in a big way, and um, and then I think in the Navy, they said that Kennedy was, like, rooming with some Jewish guy, and he said some, made some anti-Semitic comments, and the guy almost kind of beat the crap out of him, and Kennedy then kind of started to begin to reconsider some of those perspectives. Um, I think, you know, I think where I, I, I think Obama, um, you're right, I don't think Obama knew a lot of Jews um, until he, you know, was in his 20s. He, he did, you know, he's obviously had more of a familiarity with Islam and with Muslims than any previous president by far uh, from his time in Indonesia. And not only then, he was at Occidental. He was, uh, he, had, he had a series of friendships with Pakistani Americans, um, uh, both at Columbia and at, uh, at Occidental. He went to Pakistan, I think, at some point in the 1980s. So he's always had this familiarity with, uh, with Islam and Muslims as well. Um, but um, I don't, so yes, I think that the, the connection to Jews came, came later. I also think it came because Obama, it's partly because I think Obama genuinely is an intellectual, and not just intellectual. He, you know, he's a kind of literary type. So, I think, and I think he was someone searching for identity. And I think, uh, you know, he read Philip Roth, he read Saul Bellow. I think he was interested. I think, although I'm not sure I can totally prove. I think he was interested in the Jewish social justice tradition. I think he was Jewish interested in the Jewish intellectual tradition to some degree. And I also think he was interested in the Jewish kind of search for identity in a multicultural America. And because in some ways he was also trying to figure out, you know, who the heck he was. I mean, I actually think that to understand his relationship with Reverend Wright, it really helps to understand Obama as a kind of an African American Bali Chuva, um, in the sense that I'm sorry, he, can you explain that term also? <laughs> uh, but a Bali Chuva is someone who 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 comes to religion after growing up without it, uh, a Jew who kind of who who becomes religious, you know, in adulthood, um, and um, uh, looks searching searching for a Jewish identity that they didn't have. And um, I think you know Obama wanted to be African American. He made a very conscious 
Jewish decision, but he didn't grow up in an African-American environment. Um, and I think he had to learn it as an adult. And I think he, I think his attraction to Wright was because being in Wright's church offered him the chance to be in what he considered to be a fully authentic African-American environment. And I think that Wright played the same role for him that a kind of a Chabad rabbi. And Chabad is an organization that, of, of ultra-Orthodox Jews that does outreach to formerly secular Jews. And I think what a lot of the secular Jews, the reason they go to Chabad, you know, the rabbi with the long beard, is because it represents authenticity. And that's what they're looking for. And that's what I think Obama was looking for. And that to me, it helps me understand why I think that Obama could be in Wright's church, even though Wright had, I think, these somewhat extremist and offensive uh, and anti-American, anti-Semitic perspectives, while Obama didn't. Because I think there are a lot of Balichivas who, who go to Chabad and never buy on to Chabad's politics. I mean, Chabad's politics are very, very, very disturbing. Um, uh, if you look at, the, you know, uh, they were right in the thick of the, for instance, the opposition to renting apartments to Arabs in Sfat. Um, and yet I think that they, people put aside the politics because what they want is the spiritual, cultural authenticity. Okay, well, we'll have to leave the politics of Chabad for another podcast. Yeah. I, I have uh, one more question I want to ask before we get to our final signature question here on New Books and Public Policy. And it was in the section where you're talking about uh, Netanyahu's speech to the Congress, where he got something like 30 standing ovations, you have this yeah. unbelievably great detail that the Democrats in the chamber were looking to Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who is a Democratic mm -hmm. congresswoman from Florida and also the head of the, the Democratic National Committee, for the, I guess, a high sign of when they could stand up and give an ovation mm -hmm. and, and when they couldn't. That, I thought that was a tremendous detail. Where, where did that come from, and, and how did I, she decide when to give them the high sign and not? I, I can't reveal the source uh, for that, but it was someone who was in the room. I think, I think it wasn't the Democrats. I think the way I understand it, there were some moments when the Democrats knew they were going to stand up, um, but there were others where they weren't really sure. And it's a little bit, I think, you see this at State of the Unions too, right? Like there are moments when you can tell that some, one party or the other is not entirely sure whether they should stand up or not. Um, and I think, I think it's not, this is not the first time that parties have essentially, you know, you look to certain people to try to figure out, like to make a snap judgment about basically whether, you know, whether this is good for you or not. And I think that given that she's, you know, that she's been really at the forefront of members of Congress in terms of the whole Jewish outreach effort, I think that's why I think she was designated because I think, I think what, they decided, what they realized was that the Republicans were going to stand up all the time, and they they didn't want um, they didn't want to be you know to be they didn't want to be, be able to say you know the Republicans were applauding this but the Democrats weren't, and so I think it was at those some of those more controversial ones where I think they they decided that they would look to her for guidance. Well, it was a great detail. Uh, you, Thank you. You've been very uh, generous with your time. I want to ask one last question, which is our signature sure. question here on New Books and Public Policy. And sure. you sort of lay it out in the book, but the, the question is, if you were czar for the day or czar uh, of the American government, what policies would you pursue to advance the case that you make in your book? That's a good question. Um, well, I would certainly maintain... American um, military assistance to the state of Israel and trying to maintain Israel's military technological advantage, including and especially things like Iron Dome and the Arrow missile defense that I think actually the Obama administration has done a pretty good job of helping Israel to build, um, because I think those are important for Israeli security. Um, but I would try to... Um, I would try to disassociate that security uh, support from support for Israel's policies in the West Bank. So I would, um, I would not support, for instance, 
you know, tax deductions for uh, for settlements in the West Bank. Uh, I would not support a free trade area between Israel and the settlements of the West Bank. Um, and I would uh, I would try to make the case to the Israeli government that, um, and I think, as I think Obama has, but I would I would I would try to make it forcefully that. The Israeli government has to choose whether they really want a Palestinian state or not. That's not to say that a Palestinian state is going to bring nirvana. Uh, it's not to say that they're not risk. It just has to decide whether it's the lesser risk or not, because the current policies of the Israeli government are absolutely leading us towards the foreclosing of the possibility of a Palestinian state. And many, many smart people already think it's gone. That essentially, you simply can't you simply have too large an Israeli presence in the West Bank now, realistically, to be able to create a contiguous, viable Palestinian state in the West Bank. And I think the Israeli government has to take ownership of its decision about whether it wants a Palestinian state or not. And um, now that's not to say that um, you can be guaranteed that the Palestinians will go along with it. Um, it's, we don't know, and as I said, but we don't ultimately know whether the Palestinians will make the the decision on right of return, which is their most biggest concession, that what it would take to, to create a Palestinian state. But I think the Israeli, this Israeli government has to decide whether it's going to make the decision that Omer made, which is that it's going to do everything in its power to bring such a state about, not, uh, not knowing ultimately what the Palestinians will decide, and not knowing ultimately, and not knowing that this will be, not claiming that this will end all of Israel's problems, but because the alternative is a guarantee of the end of Israel as a democratic Jewish state. Um, and I think that's the I would I would simply I would try to in whatever way I could urge the Israeli government to this Israeli government to kind of make that fundamental decision that I think the previous Israeli government did make but um, was too weak to essentially bring to fruition. But I think this Israeli government actually is strong enough to perhaps bring to fruition. And that's where we're going to have to leave it. Peter Beinart, thank you for joining us on New Books in Public Policy. My pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Peter Beinart, the author of The Crisis of Zionism. It is, as I said, a controversial book. And in the interview, Peter addressed many of the criticisms of the book and how he would respond to them. I hope you enjoyed the interview. This is Tevi Troy for New Books in Public Policy, signing off and saying, until next time, keep reading. <laughs>